today is Palm Sunday. It's traditionally known as, as Palm Sunday. And uh, I don't know how you grew up. Some of you probably grew up in church. Some of you didn't. Um, there are different traditions that churches have during Palm Sunday. Uh, one tradition, sometimes churches give out full palm branches. Did anyone go to a church like that? Uh, good, a lot of y'all did. Okay. Um, I grew up in Florida where like, we actually got a full palm branch. Like We'd go in the backyard, and there's palmettos and palm trees everywhere, and so you just cut down hundreds of palm branches. And so we often got these at church, and we'd wave them around. It was part of the tradition of Palm Sunday. Uh, some of you may went to churches that made uh, symbols out of palm leaves. I've seen this at churches before, or maybe a symbol of a cross, or maybe a symbol of, of a fish. Uh, some of you grew up in churches and didn't do any of that kind of stuff. Uh, maybe Palm Sunday, the idea of that is kind of new to you. Uh, some of you didn't grow up in church at all. Um, and today is not Palm Sunday just simply to pass out palm branches, uh, as the video showed. Not simply to give out a symbol of a cross or a fish made out of a palm leaf, but it has a lot of significance. Uh, the week before Easter, the week before Jesus' death and resurrection, uh, many of you know Jesus enters into Jerusalem. It is called the triumphal entry. Uh, and with that entry, man, a lot happens, and, and the crowd is going wild that's with Jesus. And they're shouting things. They're shouting Hosanna. They're shouting uh, praises of joy. And part of this story is that they have these branches that they lay on the road. Uh, and this road is kind of, it, it gives a path for Jesus to walk through. And so as we go through the story today, we're going to look at the story uh, of Jesus' triumphal entry. We've, it's been a few years since I think we've done that at Grace. And as we go through the story, uh, I think you'll see this. You'll see that people expected a Messiah to come. That is, the Jewish people, they expected a Messiah to come. They were waiting for him. They were excited for him. But Jesus wasn't really what they were expecting. Uh, in many ways, Jesus is the opposite of what they expected. Uh, every night, I, I read books with my daughter, Anne, who is about a year and a half, getting closer to two years old at this point. And it's, it's part of our bedtime routine. A lot of you parents are probably like that, where you know bath time and then books and then bed. Uh, and so we do books every night, and there's different books that we read. We have way too many books that I can't even begin to count them. Uh, one of the books that I sometimes read is, is, is this. It is Baby's First Bible. Uh, some of you maybe have a book like this. Some parents maybe have a book like this. And uh, there's about 15 stories uh, of the Old and New Testament within this Bible. And, and one of the things I find really and I have a weird maybe sense of humor, but kind of humorous is, is how much they change about these stories. Uh, have you all read the Bible before? The, the real Bible? Yeah, okay. So, so you know that these stories, are, they're not really kid-friendly, okay? A lot of the stories in the Old Testament, they're not really child-friendly at all. And so like, we're taking these stories that sometimes are violent, sometimes are, are pretty scary for kids that are like maybe PG-13 R-rated movies if we made a movie from them, and we're trying to turn them into G-rated movies, uh, and so it's kind of, it's, it's difficult, and I kind of get a laugh out of it as I'm reading these stories and see how, many, how much detail is left out. Um, but one of the, one of the things I, I loved doing, and again, it's just kind of maybe weird me, but when she was real little, especially when she was like only a few months old and we would be reading books before she could understand anything, uh, I would read these stories and I would tell her the real story. Uh, we'd go from the, out of the kid-friendly version into the real story. And so Noah's Ark is a good example. Uh, here's Noah's Ark. It's very colorful. Like, it's always a rainbow, lots of animals. Uh, did you think you were going to be doing this in church today, reading from a children's Bible? Um, this is the only Bible I have up here. I have actually the real stuff in my notes here. But uh, no, this is Noah's Ark. Um, God told Noah to build a boat, and he filled it with all the animals. And when a big flood covered all the land, God kept them safe until the waters went down. Nice story, right? And so I would tell her, I would say, all right, well, baby, here's the real story. So the, the world was evil. And humans were doing terrible stuff. I mean, things that you can't even imagine. 
And God's like, I'm just going to start over. So he sent a flood. He killed all of humanity except for Noah. And they all kind of drowned to death. <laughs> the end. I don't do that anymore. I, I, that was before she could really understand. But I don't know if you've ever been surprised at that when you read kids' Bibles. They're all kind of like that. They're, they're very, they leave out a lot of the, the details of it. What, the thing that surprised me most, most about this Bible, and this is why I, I talk about it this morning to you guys, uh, is the last story in this Bible. Um, and I don't know if you have this version or not, but um, someone told me after the service that they have a version that's not like this. But here's the last story in this Bible. It is called Jesus is Loved. Jesus rode a donkey into town uh, for a visit. And many people loved Jesus. And they waved and cheered, hooray for Jesus the king. They shouted, the end. <laughs> and I'm like, that's not how it ends. You know, like, I'm, like I'm trying to find like the last like story or two from this Bible. I mean, that, that was wild to me because it's, it's not like Jesus goes into to Jerusalem and it's happily ever after. But that's kind of what it makes it seem like, which, which I get it. All right. So I'm not saying throw these away. Like, these have their purpose, and I'm, I'm going to continue reading this to, to my daughter, and I hope she knows these stories. But it's kind of surprising, isn't it? Because really, the whole, what I feel like, the whole story is kind of left out. You know, the reason for Jesus is kind of left out. I mean, it, in this, he's just another man. And when, you, when you think about the Gospels, when you think about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the people that wrote the Gospels of Jesus, these stories of Jesus, for them, in, in a way that... I feel like it's pretty true when I say this. The story kind of began with Palm Sunday, right? I mean, the story kind of began there because that, that is the start of the last week of Jesus' life. If not for the last week of Jesus' life and what happened that week, there would be no Gospels. There would be no point in writing these. Uh, when you think about the narratives of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, most of these cover about the three years of Jesus' ministry, right? The three last years of Jesus' life with a couple stories about his childhood. But it's mainly those three years. And I think Mike's talked about this a little bit, where you, you look at how much time they spend on the last week of Jesus' life, and it's, it's pretty shocking. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, these are the synoptic gospels, the ones that parallel each other. And these spend about a quarter to one-third of their entire text, the entire narrative, on the last week of Jesus' life, which begins with the story of Palm Sunday. You look at John's gospel, and it's even more extreme. A half of his entire narrative is devoted to the last week of Jesus' life. You see, for these writers... The gospel writers, to them, in a, in a way, the story begins with Palm Sunday. The reason that they're writing, they're like, all right, you got to know what happens the last week of Jesus' life because this changes everything. This is super, super important. And so that's why we're looking at the story today. It's, it's a perfect lead-in. It's why a lot of churches look at Palm Sunday, and we call it Palm Sunday on the week before Easter. So as I said, the, the four gospels, they all have a version of this story, and we could read any of them. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all of them would be good. Uh, today, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 21, if you want to follow along Matthew chapter 21. Uh, before we get there, I'm going to set the stage for you. Uh, so you got to know about Passover. Uh, some of you have maybe heard that term. I think a lot of you probably have heard that term. Maybe somewhat understand it. But Passover is a celebration uh, of the Jewish people getting their freedom from Egypt. Right? And so it's basically the story in the Exodus with Moses and the plagues. A lot of you know that story. It is celebrating that event that they had their freedom from Egypt. And so Passover was a big deal to them. And they often kind of referred to it or, or thought of it as a pilgrimage festival. That is, that every adult male during this ancient time of Jesus was expected to make the pilgrimage for wherever they lived to Jerusalem. Uh, it was a pilgrimage festival. And so what you can imagine about that is Jerusalem would get really busy around Passover time. And so most people think that, that Jerusalem was around 30,000 people, give or take, like around the time, off, obviously. So around 30,000 people, and it would balloon around Passover time. I mean, it would grow by like five times that number. 
I mean, you imagine throwing five times the amount of people in anywhere, and it, it gets pretty busy. So do the math. About 150,000 people might be in Jerusalem at the time of Passover. And so I kind of picture New York City, and, and this is where I thought of it. Uh, have you seen Times Square? I'm sure. Some of you have been to Times Square in New York City, and it's really busy, isn't it? It's super busy. There's lights everywhere. There's, there's um, cars everywhere. It's, no matter when you go, it's busy. And so here's what the next slide shows uh, before I got there. But, um, but New Year's Eve is even crazier, isn't it? When you think about New Year's Eve in New York City, I mean, it's, it's to another degree. Times Square is busy, but New Year's Eve, Times Square, Ryan Bold, I know you have been there as well. Did, has anyone ever been to New Year's Eve at Times Square beyond them? They're crazy. You guys too? All right. Crazy people in here. Um, but I mean, we've seen the pictures. You've seen the videos. Most of you watch TV on New Year's Eve probably and see the ball drop. Everyone kind of, uh, or uh, that is at least some people like making this pilgrimage to New York City on New Year's to see the ball drop. And man, the, the people explode in there, and they're shoulder to shoulder. They're packed in like sardines. And so you can imagine Jerusalem is similar to that, not to that degree probably, but 30,000 to 150,000 people. I mean, we are growing the city by, by a huge amount. And so the restaurants are full. You know, the streets are filled. It's probably shoulder to shoulder. There's, there's everywhere you look, there's somebody. The inns are full. Uh, and I even read that, you know, when people came and did the pilgrimage to, uh, to Jerusalem, a lot of them would stay outside of town because there's no room. And so they'd set up tents, and they would stay in, in, in neighboring cities. And it, it, it was a big deal. That's all I'm trying to say here is that Passover was a big deal for the Jewish people, especially back then, especially at the time that they honored the pilgrimage part of it. And when you think about it, when you think about that, right, like there's so many people there, and it's a big deal, it, isn't it the perfect time for someone to enter the town and announce that they're here? Isn't it the perfect time to, to enter Jerusalem and to announce something? Uh, one thing you might not know about this day, uh, the day of Palm Sunday, was that, was that there was another high-profile entry that day. See, it wasn't just Jesus. There was another high-profile entry that the Bible doesn't mention, but it's in historical records. Uh, there's a guy named Pontius Pilate. You might know his name. Uh, Pontius Pilate enters Jerusalem the day of Palm Sunday in that morning, and he comes with a ton of, of Roman soldiers. And so you can imagine this scene. They enter into the west side of Jerusalem, into the main gates, and they're walking through the streets of Jerusalem, and it's all of these soldiers, some on foot, some on horseback. They're decked out with leather armor. They have helmets that are shining, glistening, you know, in the sun. Uh, some are, are carrying spears. They have swords on their hips. There's bow and arrows on their backs. I mean, this is quite the scene. And there's a guy playing drums often when they would do these marches to the cadence, you know, of the march. And it, when Rome arrived, everyone knew it, right? When Rome was there, everyone knew that Rome was there, that Pilate was there. Uh, so growing up, I, I had two posters on my wall most of, most of my childhood. Uh, one was of Ken Griffey Jr., uh, and the other one was of Michael Jordan. Uh, I idolized these two athletes. I, I wanted to be Ken Griffey. I wanted to be Michael Jordan especially. Uh, and so when I played basketball, I was, I was Michael Jordan. You know, I, I imagined that I was him. Don't laugh. It's very easy to imagine. Uh, and so I would play basketball in my driveway, and I would lower my hoop as literally as low as it would go, which is probably like 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 this, you know, like four feet. Uh, sometimes I'd even have to use a stool, and I would dunk like Michael Jordan. I'd stick my tongue out. I would do everything like him. Uh, my dad would play with me. If, did anyone follow the Bulls, like in the 90s, this Chicago Bulls team? All right. So he was, he was Luke Longley. That's who I picked for him. Like, he couldn't be Scottie Pippen or Rodman. Luke Longley was something like nobody on the team. So yeah, that's who you are, and I'm Michael Jordan. So I would win every time. And so I love Michael Jordan. I love following him and his stats and the games. One of the things that, that I loved most about it was... Michael Jordan's entrance. 
And if you follow the Bulls, like, you'll maybe have memories of this. And, and there's actually an audio that, that, that the Bulls would play uh, every time when they would start announcing their players. Can we play that audio? Um, and you might remember the sound if you watch the Bulls. Does this bring back memories for anybody? Is it just me? Or some, I see some of you shaking your heads. But man, at this point, they start playing this audio and the, and the lights would go down and they would start announcing the players' names. And you know, it might be Steve Kerr and then Scotty Pippen. And they would wait until the very end until they announced all of the other players. And it was always like, you know, 6'6 guard from North Carolina. You know, Michael. And like, I mean, the crowd's going wild. You can, you can turn it off, it's fine. Uh, it's amazing. It's, man, I, I loved it. I loved it. I dug it as a kid, man. It got you excited. The crowd was excited. Look, the entrance that Pilate in, in Rome has, it was a grand entrance like that, right? It, it was big, and they, and they had the music. They had it all. They had the uniforms. And man, when Rome came in, it was like, whoo, look at Rome. Rome is here. And it was a grand, great entrance. And so you might be imagining or maybe asking the question, like, why is Rome here? Why is Rome in Jerusalem during Passover? Uh, do they care? Are they honoring uh, the celebration of it? Look, Rome, Rome is there because they want to make sure the Jewish people remember who Rome is. Okay? So you think about what Passover is. Passover is the celebration, as I said, from their freedom. That is the celebration of their slavery. And they, they became free from Egypt. So it's celebrating the freedom from an empire. Rome is their new empire. And they want to make sure, hey, don't forget who Rome is. And so every Passover, I guess it was tradition, and maybe other festivals as well, that Rome would enter, basically show them how powerful they were, and basically to remind them, look, we are still here. Don't forget it. Don't get any ideas. You got a lot of people here. Don't rebel. Rome is still here. Rome can still take you out if we want to. So Rome entered that day. Now, the other entry that you might be aware of, a lot of you might be aware of, is the other entry that happened that day on the other side of Jerusalem with Jesus. So Matthew chapter 21 Uh, Let's read that story in the text, Matthew 21. So as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone sees anything or says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. So at the end of chapter 20, if we were reading this from like 1 all the way through 21, you would see the story playing out. And sometimes when you hear they, I think I often think of like the 12 disciples and Jesus. But it's actually a huge crowd that's following Jesus. This huge crowd that's been coming from Galilee is making this trip with Jesus. And so we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of people here. So as they approach Jerusalem, there's a ton of people coming with Jesus. And they come to Bethpage, which is about a mile or two outside of Jerusalem. So they make this pit stop in Bethpage, and there's this little encounter that, that kind of goes about about picking up this donkey, and he sends two disciples. We don't know their names. You can pick any two that you want to in your mind if you want to picture that. And they go and they get these donkeys for Jesus. So why a donkey? Right? Why, why does Jesus ride a donkey? Some of you might know, but it, it's curious because, first off, Jesus is very capable of walking, right? We get that. Like, he doesn't have any, anything to where he, he can't walk. Like, he very well can walk. So why, why a donkey? And we also read in the Gospels where Jesus actually never rides an animal except for this story. Have you noticed that? Like he never rides an animal except for this story. And I also read that on Passover, it was tradition, it was part of kind of the rules, you might say, for people to walk into Jerusalem. Like it, it wasn't allowed, that they didn't expect people to ride on an animal. Everyone's the same, we're all making this pilgrimage, we're all walking to, to Jerusalem. And so this is very odd. This is very abnormal is all I'm trying to say. So then you see this encounter, and I don't know if your mind works like mine, 
Like, hopefully not. But, but, but I look at this, and it kind of looks like Jesus is stealing a donkey. Have you ever thought about that? Or it's kind of like this setup to where it's like, all right, go into town and be really quiet. And if anyone sees you, just say the Lord needs them, God needs them. And then that, that's, I don't know, I, my mind went there. But uh, what's actually going on here, I think, is that this has all been planned. You know, this has been set up. And so it seems like Jesus is telling these two disciples who are unnamed, look, go into town. And these are probably friends of the disciples. They are probably friends of Jesus. And maybe they set up some secret code, you might call it some passcode that is the Lord needs them. Um, so when they hear that, they know Jesus has arrived and they're going to hand him off the donkey. That's what I think is going on here. Um, so let's look at uh, verses 4 and 5. And this gets the explanation of what uh, or why Jesus rides the donkey. So this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt the foal of a donkey. And so this is a quotation directly from Zechariah 9.9. Some of your Bibles might footnote that to you. A lot of times they'll do that. Uh, so Zechariah 9, this is a prophet, a prophet that maybe you don't read much in the Old Testament, but hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus, Zechariah is saying, look, there's somebody who's coming. There's somebody who's coming. The Messiah is coming. The king is coming. He's going to be riding on a donkey. So you see the direct parallel with what's going on. And it's really interesting to me. It's, it's a little bit of a side note here. But when you read Zechariah 9, you see this image of peace that is playing out in Zechariah's imagery. He's talking about how the Messiah is going to remove the chariots. He's going to remove the bow and arrows. And, and essentially, that, that the Messiah who comes is going to remove the violence and all of that, ha- that has to do with that. And it's an image of peace that he's going to come humble, meekness, and in peace. Um, and, I, and I'll say, I think a lot of the Jewish people kind of missed out on that imagery because the popular opinion, the, the majority opinion that time was that the Messiah was going to come and vindicate them from Rome. Right? The Messiah was going to be the earthly king. The Messiah wasn't just like this, this heavenly king. To them, the Messiah was going to fix all their problems on earth. But in any case, they make this connection. And you can imagine people are beginning to talk, and they're like, man, is, I remember that thing about Zechariah and, and the donkey, and then they're making this connection with Jesus riding on a donkey into Jerusalem. Remember, he, he's the only one that's doing this. No one's riding a donkey into town. This was abnormal. And so they begin talking, and people begin making that connection. Look at verses 6 through 8. You'll see it playing out. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. And they brought the donkey and the colt, and they placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. And a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And so they get the donkeys, they make their way to Jerusalem, and they begin spreading their cloaks, and this is where we get Palm Sunday from, and the branches on the road. And they make this kind of, what you might call like a makeshift red carpet for Jesus to walk through into Jerusalem. All right, verse 9. And the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. So they're shouting these these pretty big things. I'm just going to say that. These aren't small things that they're shouting. They're saying, Hosanna. We don't know exactly what this word means, but it's a shout of praise. It carries a sense of saving. It might even mean like save us. It's very much a big word. And they're saying, Hosanna, son of David. They're connecting him to that popular, very big figure in, in the Jewish religion, David. He is the new king. He is the Messiah. These are big things that they are shouting. And so you can imagine maybe how the city begins to respond. The crowd that has followed Jesus, man, they're excited. They're pumped up. They're announcing his return. The city is kind of unexpected. They're sitting there, and they experience Jesus, a lot of them, for the first time. And and, and look how they respond here in verse 10 and 11. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was, what, they were stirred, and they asked, who is this? 
And the crowds answered, this is Jesus, the same crowds that have been following him. This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. The city is, what does it say, stirred. Um, often when I think about this story, I, I kind of think of Jerusalem just accepting Jesus with open arms. And everyone's kind of excited, but it says the city is actually stirred. Uh, and we don't get a sense of exactly what that means. Maybe some were excited. Maybe some were just kind of like, who is this guy? I think there's a lot of just wonder, a lot of just inquiry. We're, we're not really sure what to do with this guy. He's coming in on a donkey, which is abnormal, which is weird. And he's got this big crowd following that is shouting all of these big things about being a king and being the Messiah. Who is this guy? So I told you about the other entrance that day, the entrance of Pontius Pilate and the Roman soldiers, because I think it's a very good contrast with the way Jesus enters Jerusalem that day. And in a lot of ways, it's kind of the opposite, isn't it? In a lot of ways, it's kind of very much the contrast of what's going on. And you see, almost Every way that Rome enters, almost every way that Pontius Pilate enters is the way that the Jewish people would have expected the Messiah to enter. Does that make sense? All right, see, they expected the kind of the allure and the power and the might that Rome enters the city. They expect the armies. They expect the soldiers. But they get a donkey. They get Jesus without any army. They get humility. They get meekness. And you see, what, what really is going on here is that Jesus is, in a lot of ways, the unexpected expected. And I'm going to try to parse that out a little bit if that confuses you, because I know it's, it's two words that mean the opposite, and I do that on purpose. Jesus is the unexpected expected. See, most thought the Messiah would come and, as I said, save them from Rome. They wanted the earthly kingdom. They wanted that vindication. So Jesus was expected, but the way that he came was very unexpected. See, they almost expected Jesus to come through the front gate, right? To come through the front gate, to come through the streets, the mayor of Eretz say, I am the Messiah, but he comes through the back gate. See, they expected the Messiah to come as the earthly king, as I said, but instead Jesus only claimed to be a heavenly king. They expected the Messiah to come and, and to have power and to have armies and have all this might, but he came with really none of that. He came on a donkey in humility. And you see how Jesus was the unexpected expected. And so the, the city responds and asks the question, who is this? Who is this? We, we know the images of Zechariah, but they're not really putting the pieces together, I think. They're questioning, and we know what happens at the end of this week, why they never really put it together on who Jesus was. And, and they're wondering, they're questioning, they can't, they're thinking, this can't be the one who was expected. This can't be the Messiah that was promised. This can't be the one who's saving us from what they think is Rome, from the empire above them. You see, they missed out on Jesus. Right? I mean, they missed out on Jesus. And really more than that, we know what happens at the end of the week. They crucified him. Because their expectations, I think, blinded them to who Jesus really was. See, they were disappointed because why? Because the Messiah was not who they were expecting. Jesus was not who they were expecting. Jesus was really not who they wanted, who they desired, when you think about it like that. And really, when you think about it, I don't know if much has changed when it comes to our faith. See, we, I think we still get disappointed when God doesn't really measure up to our expectations. Have you noticed that? Like, at times we get frustrated and disappointed when, when our expectations are not met, when our desires that we think maybe we deserve are not met. And so I don't know how this plays out. Maybe you've been praying for something for a long time, and you're in prayer right now still, and you're waiting for that prayer to be answered, and... and Really, it just it hasn't been answered in that, at least the way that you want, and you're still waiting. 
Maybe you've been expecting life to go a little bit better in your life. You think, you know, I'm, I'm living a pretty decent life. I would expect God to bless me in a, in a little bit of ways, but maybe your life is still just, it's kind of, it's, it's hard. You know, things are not going the way that you want. And so maybe God hasn't met your expectations in that way. Do you see how we do this at times? That where we have expectations of God and sometimes we feel like they're not met. And so what you got to understand is this, and I think it's, it's true then and it's true now, which is that our frustrations and disappointments, they don't come from God. But our frustrations and disappointments, they come from our self-made expectations of God. You see the difference there, right? They don't come from God, but the self-made expectations that we have that says, God, you should be doing this. God, I feel like you should be acting in this way. See, the crowd was disappointed because they expected a Messiah to save them from Rome. They expected an earthly king. And their, their wants were not met, but to be honest, their needs were. See, often we get disappointed too when God doesn't meet our self-made expectations of him. Let me, let me give you an example of this. Uh, my sister, she used to take piano lessons when she was in middle school. And so I would have been in about probably the fourth grade or so at this point. Um, and I was a typical fourth grade boy, like everything just kind of bothered me. And then I complained about a lot of stuff. I'm sorry if you're a fourth grade boy in here, but um, everything just kind of bothered me at this point. And so I would often have to go pick up my sister with my mom when she was done with her piano lessons. And I never wanted to go. I always thought, I don't want to go pick up my sister. But, but we would go and we'd pick her up at these piano lessons. And this would often happen like right after school. So I'd go home for an hour. My mom would pick me up. We'd go to school and we'd walk over to the piano teacher's office. And so we get into this office for the very first time. Again, I don't want to be there, but something I see amazes me. Because in front of me in this piano teacher's office right there is this almost this giant sculpture of lollipops. It's like this, this huge display. And it's, maybe you've seen something like this before, but it's like a giant column, like a giant post. I think it was like made out of wood, and, and there's all these holes in them. And all the lollipops are displayed all around. Can you see what I'm talking about here? And you can kind of spin it if you want to pick a different flavor. And these aren't dum-dums, like those little like Halloween candy lollipops. Like, like these are lollipops. I mean, I'm, I'm picturing like, I mean, they're probably like this or this. But, but, but they're big. They're big lollipops, and there's all these flavors. These aren't the normal flavors. I mean, there's like strawberry cheesecake. There's mint chocolate chip. Uh, there's cookies and cream, if I remember. I mean, it was amazing. And so I'm sitting there, like, probably drooling and staring at this display of lollipops. And the piano teacher's looking at me, and she's like, well, do you want one? Absolutely. And so I pick, like, a cookies and cream, and I open it. It was the best lollipop I've ever had. It was delicious. And so I had a good visit that day. You know, I, I was complaining. I, did, I was bothered by going to pick up my sister, but I was excited to be there because I got one of these delicious lollipops. And so the next day or the day after whatever, when we pick up my sister, again, I'm like, all right, this is going to be great. I'm going to get a lollipop. It's fine. You know, pick up my sister, whatever, but I'm going to get one of these delicious ones, maybe mint chocolate chip. I don't know. Maybe one of those this time. And so I arrive and I get into the office and I'm staring at the lollipops, you know, kind of waiting for it. And she never offers it. I'm like, all right. So we leave, and, and I'm disappointed. You know, I'm just kind of like, oh, maybe she forgot. You know, maybe she, she forgot, and next time well, I'll get a lollipop. And so I go to the next time, and again, no offer of a lollipop. And so this goes on for weeks and months. And the whole time that my sister is taking these piano lessons, I show up. I'm expecting a lollipop finally, and I never get another one. And so maybe you see what I'm doing here is, is look, I was disappointed each time we picked up my sister because after the first visit, when I got this lollipop, I now expected a lollipop every time, right? You see how I made kind of that conclusion. Look, I wouldn't have been disappointed in the first visit if I hadn't made that expectation. And look, I was a fourth grade boy. 
Uh, the teacher never said, you're going to get a lollipop every time you come into this office, but I made that expectation myself. These were what? Self-made expectations that I had, and I was disappointed when they weren't met. And you see, I think this happens in our faith when we create these self-made expectations of God. And sometimes, as I said, it can lead to frustrations. It can lead to points to where we are frustrated in our faith, we are frustrated in church. Sometimes we leave church because of these things, because God maybe is not measuring up to the expectations that we have made for him. So maybe you've been expecting God to act sooner than he has, right? Maybe God's not been acting on what you think is the right timeline for your life, and you've been waiting on something, you've been waiting on someone, you've been waiting on a prayer to be answered in some way, and things are just not happening. And, and maybe you, you sit here now and you're a little bit disappointed. You're a little bit frustrated. Maybe you've been in that scenario before. Maybe at, at some point you've been expecting God to, as I said, kind of bless you a little bit more. Like your life just to go a little bit better than it has. And you're still kind of struggling through life. And maybe if you got that promotion, you got that thing that you really wanted, then you, you thought life would be going a little better. But you're still kind of waiting. And, and maybe God's never really quite measured up to those expectations. And um, if you're in that situation now, if you've been there, I, I want you to ask yourself something because it, it it really will define what's happening, which is this. Did God disappoint you, or did your expectations of God disappoint you? Right? And so many times we're frustrated and disappointed at God where I really think it's our self-made expectations that we have on him that he's never promised or never said that's going to happen. So what disappointed you? And so, so check this out. Like, we're not going to end here, and, and I'm not just going to say your, your whole life is going to be disappointing and you're going to be always frustrated. Uh, it's not like that in, in faith. Um, I, I don't think God's just acting and, and think, just doesn't care about us. He loves us and cares about us. I think it's very clear in the Gospels. Um, but what you need to know is this, is that God has his own purposes in mind, right? God's will is in, is in his mind. Our purposes and our will are, are not in God's mind. His purposes, his will is in his mind, and they're always better than ours, right? They're always better than ours, and oftentimes it's going to differ from our desires. It's going to differ from our wants. It's going to differ from our timeline. So you think about the crowd, right? You think about the city of Jerusalem, and, and they were wanting, as I said, a Messiah, an earthly king. But what did God send them? He sent them a heavenly king, something that lasts way more longer than an earthly king, something much better. You think about the Pharisees, and the Pharisees always debated with Jesus, and they're always bickering back and forth. The Pharisees just saw Jesus as like an enemy, someone who was just going against them, going against their way of life. But what did God send them? God sent them a better way to live. God showed them a way outside of the rules, outside of the legalism. He said, here's a better way to live in the freedom and the grace that God has for us. You think about the apostles. The apostles were disappointed when Jesus dies. It's pretty clear. Like, they didn't quite understand what this was all about. They were disappointed. They, they hold themselves up in a room for a few days when Jesus died. They wanted a Messiah that was living. But what did they get? They got a Messiah that rose from the dead. You see what happens here? Is look, sometimes our, our will or that is our desires and the things that we want, they're not always going to line up with God's will and purposes. See, God works in unexpected ways because our expectations are not always what is best. And so we can live in frustration, we can live in disappointment when God doesn't measure up to the things that we want, to the things that we desire. Or we can live in the freedom knowing that God's will is best. You see, he's not going to meet every want and desire that you have. I, I will never promise you that on stage as, as a follower of Jesus. He's not going to measure up to every, everything that you want. But what I can promise is he's going to meet your needs. Uh, he's going to work in his purpose, which I promise you is always better. See, Jesus is very much the unexpected expected. 
We're going to see the end of this story uh, next week. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this morning, God. I thank you for uh, the people in this room. God, I thank you for their attention and just uh, for their willingness to learn. And, and Father, I pray that uh, the message was, was heard. Um, Father, I pray that you spoke through it, God, I, and I hope I faded in the background, God, that you were really clear in this. Father, I thank you so much for your son, God, and how surprising and how unexpected his whole life was, Father. But God, you knew what we needed. God, you knew what humanity needed, that we didn't need an earthly king, we didn't need another one. God, that we needed a heavenly king, we needed a savior. God, thank you for not meeting our expectations, God, but for meeting the thing that we really needed, which is a savior. Father, I thank you for your love and for your grace and for sending him. I pray these things in your son's name. Amen.